remember 2015 to me it feels like a lifetime ago I started a new job at the UUA at the beginning of that year, helping congregations connect with UN initiatives and the work of the United Nations at our office at the UN. And at the end of 2015, I remember feeling so hopeful. In December, the Paris Climate Agreement was created. It was insufficient, but it felt like there was energy for meaningful change. A few months earlier in September, all 193 member states of the United Nations had just unanimously adopted the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, which included 17 goals for a more peaceful, resilient, just, and prosperous world. The introduction to that 2030 Agenda includes the following statement. As we embark on this great collective journey, we pledge that no one will be left behind. Recognizing that the dignity of the human person is fundamental, we wish to see the goals and targets met for all nations and peoples and for all segments of society. And we will endeavor to reach the farthest behind first. Six years later, I hate to say, it feels like a different world. Have we reached the farthest behind first? Not with global COVID vaccinations. Have we left no one behind? Not if you look at countries' weak commitments submitted for the UN Climate Summit that starts a week from today. Have we recognized the dignity of the human person? Not enough when marginalized people live in fear of those entrusted with community safety. There are so many ways our world is hurting and the pandemic has set us back on progress to achieve most, if not all of the 17 sustainable development goals. But fulfilling the goals is still possible. Last year, the UN launched a decade of action to increase global activity for the SDGs with an eye toward 2030 as the year to achieve the goals. If you're not already familiar with the Sustainable Development Goals, I know 17 is a lot to keep track of. But importantly, all 17 goals are mutually reinforcing. So we don't need to, we actually should not, we cannot, address them separately. Today on UN Sunday, our theme is all in for climate justice, food equity, and sustainability. When we look for climate and food justice in the Sustainable Development Goals, we might first point to goals 13 and 2, climate action and zero hunger. But what about goal 3, good health and well-being? Or goal 10, reduced inequalities? Or goal 12, responsible consumption and production. I could go on all day. Climate justice, racial justice, gender justice, disability justice, labor justice, food justice, these all go hand in hand. Let me give a local example of some different intersecting issues. I live in Rochester, New York, which is home to the famous Wegmans chain of grocery stores. In March of this year, 
to mark the one-year anniversary of the murder of Daniel Prude by Rochester police, Black Lives Matter activists protested outside the one remaining Wegmans grocery located inside city limits. At the time, some people were confused about what a grocery store had to do with racial justice. The activists were in part calling attention to one way that racial oppression manifests, which is as food apartheid. When it was starting out, Wegmans was a small grocery in the inner city of Rochester where it served vulnerable communities. As their business took off, they shut down their smaller city stores and expanded in the suburbs. In a city that's 40% Black and 37% non-Hispanic White, the only remaining urban Wegmans store on East Avenue is only easily accessible to the wealthy, mostly white residents in the surrounding neighborhood. Thanks to a history of redlining, high quality grocery stores are not present in other parts of town where more black residents live. This is a classic example of how food apartheid arises. You may have heard the term food deserts. It's more commonly used than food apartheid, but it's also not super accurate because often communities under food apartheid do have food. It's not entirely barren, but what is affordable and most accessible is food that's heavily processed and low in nutrients like you might get from convenience stores or fast food. The term food desert also conceals the root causes of lack of access to healthy foods, implying that these areas are naturally occurring rather than the result of centuries of oppression. Food apartheid can show up in cities like Rochester, but also across regions of the world, resulting from legacies of colonialism and imperialism. Another important concept here is food sovereignty. This is essentially the idea that people should have control over the food that they eat. When food sovereignty exists in a community, the food reflects their culture. It's easy to find and pay for the ingredients that they want. And the foods are grown or produced in a way that corresponds with their values. Food sovereignty implies a personal connection to food and land and an agency to make choices that does not and cannot exist in a system of food apartheid. Last month, the UN hosted a food systems summit aimed at transforming food systems globally to achieve the sustainable development goals. This was an opportunity for the world to recognize together the brokenness of current global food systems where one third of food produced for human consumption is lost or wasted every year, while around one tenth of the world's people are hungry. During the summit itself, countries made national commitments after months of open dialogues with various stakeholders. The UUA office at the UN was part of an incredible interfaith movement convened by the Center for Earth Ethics that presented a faith plus food statement during the summit on November 23rd. It called on countries to take 11 specific actions to align their national production and consumption to sustainable regenerative outcomes centered in equity and care for the most vulnerable. 
Our director, Bruce Knotts, pushed to strengthen the statement's language for addressing hunger and starvation and made sure that it highlighted the need for culturally appropriate food. As food is such an important part of cultural expression, what and how people eat matters as much, if not more, to them as getting enough nutrients. In immediate famine and crisis responses, the UN provides whatever nutrients they can get in fast. But in terms of sustainable food security and food sovereignty, communities need a say in what they grow, produce, and eat. In global food systems now, Rather than food sovereignty, what we have instead are farmers forced by government incentives and multinational agro-development agencies to farm one particular type of crop using synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, and GMO seeds that harm soil health and biodiversity, all through a system that leaves farmers in agonizing debt. Key to the food sovereignty conversation is the fact that indigenous and grassroots communities have a deep understanding of how to sustainably produce food in ways that work alongside, not against the earth's natural systems. This is a core element of agroecology. The UN Food Systems Summit failed in critical ways to properly heed the input of those on the front line, the poor and hungry, as well as small scale and landless farmers, workers, indigenous peoples, peasants, women, and fisherfolk who are most affected by the current food crisis. The summit organizers were so focused on getting everybody together to create solutions that they didn't stop to ask, why does hunger exist? What's at the root of the problems? And so there was no discussion in the summit of accountability for those corporate actors that created the crisis in the first place. Instead, such entities like Nestle, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Tyson and Bayer were invited to offer solutions and be part of shaping the summit agenda. In this context and so many others, the job of civil society organizations like your UU office at the UN is to hold to account governments and others in and around the United Nations. Along with our interfaith collaborators, we've called for a series of actions and now we get underway to keep the pressure up and monitor what they're actually following through on. The interfaith statement will also be presented at next month's UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, COP26. The United Nations is clearly not immune from political and economic influence. And yet people are coming together Thousands convened virtually to boycott the summit and engage in counter mobilizations, lifting up agroecology, food sovereignty, and their solutions to the climate and food systems crises. There is a lot we can learn about how to revolutionize farming practices to address climate change. I am not a farmer. You will have to talk to other members of my family if you want more in-depth information, but here are some basics as far as I understand it. In science class, you probably learned about photosynthesis, the process plants use to extract carbon dioxide from the air and convert it into oxygen. 
When plants capture that carbon from the air, they store it in the soil. It's known as a carbon sink. Healthy soil keeps carbon secure in the ground where it belongs. But frequent tilling and pesticide use thins out the soil and degrades it so it can't hold on to the carbon, instead releasing it into the atmosphere. When the same land is used over and over to produce the same crops, the soil gets worn out. These are the important things. Growing different types of crops on the same land is healthy for the soil. It's also healthy nutritionally for people and healthy for the climate in terms of lowering carbon emissions. We essentially need as much biodiversity as possible. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, reported in 2019 that loss of biodiversity presents a major threat to food security globally. We're starting to see the influence of climate change, which is compounding threats to ecosystems from poor management of land and water, pollution, and overharvesting. Meanwhile, lack of genetic diversity leaves plant and animal species vulnerable to all of these changes. When it comes to how to address issues like climate change, there's often a tension between those calling for systemic change and behavior, individual behavior change. I think you won't be surprised to hear me say, right, we need both. A Yes Magazine guide on how to get rid of throwaway culture invites us to consider that individual actions empower us to demand more from corporations and governments and ultimately change social norms. This is true for consumption of food, as well as plastics, clothing, and so much more that makes capitalist society unsustainable. Shifting to plant-rich diets is one solution that comes up often in addressing climate change. Reverend Nika spoke about the health and nutrition aspects of this last week, so I won't get into that. It's important to clarify that not everyone can or should adopt an entirely plant-based diet. Many cultures around the world, notably indigenous communities, do have ways of sustainably raising livestock for food and shouldn't be forced to give up those cultural traditions. Rather, the rest of the world should learn from them. Individuals may have dietary restrictions, sensitivities, or eating disorders that would make a plant-based diet a bad idea for maintaining their health. And of course, lack of access to nutritious plant-based options is yet another barrier that many face. And yet, for those who can, decreasing regular consumption of animal products is one essential move toward mitigating climate change. Often, forests get cleared for livestock grazing, which first of all, destroys the lush carbon capturing forests and their essential biodiversity. And secondly, cows emit enormous amounts of methane, a, har a harmful greenhouse gas. According to Project Drawdown, business as usual emissions could be reduced by as much as 70% through adopting a vegan diet and 63% for a vegetarian diet, which includes cheese, milk, and eggs. The moral of this story is 
Solutions to food insecurity and food apartheid are also solutions to climate change. Equitable and sustainable food systems can lead us toward climate justice. This is the message we've been bringing this year to the United Nations, and we hope you'll bring it to your local community as well. The new Code Red report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, in August showed us how urgently action must be undertaken to save our planet. It's getting harder, but it's always possible to make a difference and protect our ecosystems and one another. A new climate podcast from the United Nations called No Denying It features an Indigenous leader and activist, Chief Dana Tizjatram, in the first episode. The host of that episode shared a powerful message to conclude, which I will share here. Listening to the land reveals that all is not well, and it hasn't been for a while. Listening to the land also reveals the solutions, which means for those of us who don't have a deep generational connection to the land, it's time to listen to people who do. Learn about indigenous communities in your region. Seek out their voices, hear what they are saying about what needs to change. Ask how you can be useful to the movement and pitch in. Because before we can act wisely, we have to listen deeply. May it be so.